Good evening, CHCC. It is a pleasure to stand before you today. It's good to see a lot of friendly faces here. I was honored when Pastor Josh asked me to come and preach, knowing that he had already went through all the other pastors and they told him no. So I'm getting sloppy seconds, actually sloppy four. So he went to Pastor T, D, Baba Tuna, they said, nah, I'm busy. So he turned to me, I'm like that last kid getting picked on a basketball team. I'm like, pick me, pick me. So I'm just messing with y'all. It's, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I appreciate the prayer by Brother Brock. Indeed, I consider all of you friends. And so with that, let me go ahead and offer a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into it. Lord God, we do thank you uh, for this day that you've given us. Father, I, I give you praise and thanks for CHCC. I thank you for calling them into existence. I thank you for this new gospel work that you have planted here in Congress Heights. Father, I thank you. It was already mentioned for Pastor Josh and uh, his wife, Jessica, and their little one, LJ. I thank you for each and every person that has joined them in helping to plant this church. Father, we know that you are doing great things through them, and we thank you for that. We thank you for all those that they will reach as they stay diligent, as they are ever eager to share the gospel with their neighbors. And now, Father, as we turn to hear a word from you, I simply ask that you will use me as a vessel to deliver what thus saith the Lord to your people. It's in your son's name I do pray. Amen. How old is Congress Heights Community Church? Y'all about seven months old, six, seven months old? Yeah. So I think you guys would agree in those short seven months that you would agree with the following statement, that Christian ministry is complex, right? And when I say Christian ministry, I simply mean those activities that we engage in as a local church that fulfills the Great Commission, this idea of going into all the world, right? This idea of making disciples, baptizing those disciples, and then teaching those disciples all that Christ has commanded. And I say that Christian ministry is complex because we understand that God is sovereign over all things, including our ministry activities. However, under God's sovereignty, we feel the greatness of that day to day. We feel joy when we share the gospel and someone comes to Christ. We have this sense of happiness when we've been walking with a brother and sister and we help them achieve a victory over a portion of their life. But we also feel sorrow when a brother or sister in Christ would choose a life of sin over a life of holiness. Sometimes it's frustration. We could be chopping up with a brother and sister for days on days on days, asking and begging and pleading them to come to Christ. But then we realize there is nothing that we can humanly do to make them repent of their sins, to make them believe in Christ. And that at times is frustrating. At times, we're disappointed, disappointed over the numbers, numbers that we want, right? We said we've been a church plan for X amount of months. We think we should have this many people join our church. Or we get jealous at times, if we're honest, over numbers that another church down the street may have or across town. And in the midst of God's sovereignty, as we feel this grittiness of the day to day, at times we start to question. We start to doubt. We start to ask ourselves, is CHCC the right church for me? We start to ask, should I have left ARC to come here? And then sometimes, if we're honest, we start asking, what in the world were we thinking when we planted this church? Right? But don't fret. There is hope and encouragement in God's word. And so this evening, if you would join me, I would love to look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20, 
as Luke provides a window into the Apostle Paul's life as he is ministering Ephesus. And the beauty of Luke documenting this section of Paul's life for us is that we get to learn and watch from one of the best to ever lace them up. And as we observe Paul as he ministers in Ephesus, I'm hoping that we will know three ways that will help us deal with the ups and downs of Christian ministry. And we're going to use these three ways to guide our time through the rest of this evening. Point number one, we should embrace the freedom we have as we do Christian ministry. Point number two, we want to accept the uncertainty of not knowing how people will respond to us when we share the gospel with them. And then point number three, we want to find encouragement in the fruit that comes in God's timing and in God's way. So we want to embrace the freedom. We want to accept the uncertainty. And then we want to find encouragement in the fruit that God will give us. Amen. All right. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and crack it open to Acts chapter 19. And I'll read for us verses 1 through 20. And I'll be reading it from the ESV. And it reads as follows. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles in the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, con- and I'm sorry, and they counted the value of them and found it, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. So by way of background, in Acts chapter 18, we actually find Paul finishing his second missionary journey. So in Acts 18, Luke records for us that Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, then he passed through Ephesus, and then went back to Antioch, which, which oftentimes served as his home base before he set out on a missionary journey. And that's exactly what we see here. So as we enter into Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we actually find Paul starting his third missionary journey. And what I want us to do in verses 1 to 10, I want us to notice, or I want us to take note of the freedom that Paul enjoys. Specifically, I want us to notice Paul in three environments for three lengths of time using three different ministry methods, if I can speak. So first, note the environments. In verse 1, we're told, as it happened, that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. So we find Paul out there in the streets, passing through the inland country on the block. So that's the first location. Verse 8, Luke clearly tells us, he, and he entered the synagogue. So that's the second location. And then in verse 9, we see that he leaves the synagogue, and then he goes into the hall of Tyrannus. That's the third location. Now, notice that he's in each one of these locations for three different lengths of time. So the way that Luke writes verses 1 to 7, we are to understand that this conversation with the disciples takes place over the course of a single day. All right. In verse 8, we're clearly told that he's in the synagogue for three months. And then if you go down to verse 10, he's in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. Right. So we got three different locations three different, um, in, I'm sorry, lengths of time, and now it's three different ministry methods. So go back to verse one and notice that Luke says that as Paul was passing through the inland country, he comes upon some disciples, right? But Paul's not sure what kind of disciples they are. He's able to observe them and he knows that they're religious people, but he's not sure if they're Christians. So he engages in the Q&A back and forth, asking them about the Holy Spirit, asking them about their baptism. He's on a fact-finding mission, right? So he doesn't come to them assuming that he knows everything. He doesn't try to make all these assumptions. He's asking them questions, and he's intent on listening to their answers. And then and only then, after they give him the answers, does he engage them with the gospel in verse 4. Right. So we see him observing. We see him asking questions. We see him listening. And then we see him giving the gospel. Right. So that's the first method that he uses. And then in the synagogue, when he goes in verse eight, it's a completely different ministry method that he takes. And that's for good reason, because this is not his first time in Ephesus. So if you flip, well, for me, anyway, if you flip back a page and you look at Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 21, we find these words. And they, Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, I'm sorry, a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So in verse 8, we find Paul coming back to somewhere he's already been. So he comes up there like, hey, I'm back. And he goes right at them. There is no asking questions. There is no Q&A. The Bible says that he speaks boldly. He's reasoning with them. He's persuading with them because he knows who these people are. 
So this is a different method that he takes them when he's at on the street with the disciples, but it's a very good reason, right? So that's the second method that Paul is using. And just as an aside, let's not miss the fact that you go into a synagogue primarily for one reason, and that's to find Jesus, right? So we see Paul going to a specific place, seeking after a specific kind of people for a specific reason, right? He's looking for Jews so that he can have them come to salvation. And I say that to say that when you think about CXCC and where you guys have decided to be planted, don't let people make you second guess what you're doing. You've come to Congress Heights, a specific place, to seek after the residents here, a specific people for a specific mission, their salvation and their flourishing. So in the same way that Paul goes into synagogues looking for Jews, you guys came to Congress Heights looking for the residents here. So you guys are being just as godly as Paul was every time we see him running up in the synagogue when you came here to Congress Heights. So just keep that in mind, all right? So that's just an aside. And then the third place that we see him at the Hall of Tyrannus, we're told that he was reasoning there for two years, right? So that's the third ministry method that we find. And so as we look at these first few verses, Luke is showing us that we can be flexible with the location of our ministry activities, the duration of those activities, the methods of those activities, and even those that we choose to minister to. Tremendous freedom Paul is enjoying here. But there's one thing that we should know, one thing that Paul is not free, and that's sharing the gospel. So if you notice, in every place that he goes to, whether he's on the street, whether he's in the synagogue, whether he's in the tall of Tyrannus, he is always giving them that gospel message. Right? So in the first place, we see him Q&A about, the, about baptism, and then he gets to the gospel. When he's at the synagogue, we hear that he's reasoning, speaking boldly about the kingdom of God, giving them gospel that way. And at the Hall of Tyrannus, Luke says that he gives them the word of the Lord. And so likewise, whenever we're out there, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we're doing our ministry efforts, we too must be like Paul and share the gospel. Amen? So what am I saying? That as we think about the complexity of ministry, right, as we're under God's sovereignty, as we're wrestling with this day-to-day grittiness, just like Paul, we should embrace the freedom that we have as we do ministry. We should use our newness as a church plant to our advantage. Traditions are great, but at times they can be weights, right? You guys are still young enough that you can try so many different things and not be bound by this thing, but we've always done it that way. You're only seven months old. You should feel the freedom to try something. If it works, great. If not, try something else. If not, try something else. You have the ability to use your smallness to be agile. See your smallness as an advantage. See your newness as an advantage. Be creative with how you share the gospel. Keep it fresh. Keep it new. Change things up. God has blessed you with newness. Embrace that. Embrace the freedom. And at the same time, again, we can, as much flexibility as we have, we must be firm in sharing the gospel. We must love our neighbors enough to tell them that they are sinners. Apart from Christ, they are on their way to a burning hell for eternity. But we must care for them enough to give them the good news of Jesus. We must be clear. We must let them know that Christ has come, God in the flesh, to earth to live a perfect life. The life that you and I didn't live, so he came to live it for us. 
And because of that perfect life he lived, they put him on the cross to die a criminal's death. And on that cross, he took upon himself the holy and righteous wrath of a sovereign God. And the Bible says that three days later, he was resurrected for our justification. So in the same way that Paul was out there sharing the gospel, we should do the same thing and then let them know how they can apply it. We should call them to repentance, call them to turn from their sins, and call them to put faith in Christ. We must do that while at the same time embracing this great flexibility that we have in doing ministry. Amen? Amen. But at the same time, with all this freedom, we have to accept the uncertainty that we don't know how people are going to respond to us when we share the gospel. We have no idea. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 19 as well. So notice when Paul's on the block, notice in verse 5 what we find. On hearing this, this is after Paul sets it straight about the different baptisms. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so what Luke wants us to know is that as soon as Paul shared the gospel, they immediately came to faith in Christ. He shared the gospel. They responded. They were converted instantly. But Luke is also showing that's not always how it happens. Notice what happens when he goes into the synagogue. So in verse 9, we find these words. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So what we see here is that when he was on the block with the disciples, we saw an instant conversion. When he now goes to his own people, the people in Romans 9 that he calls his kinmen after the flesh, the same ones that he said he would give up his spot in heaven for, they actually reject him. They, have, they want nothing to do with him. They are stubborn. They're speaking evil of the way. And it is so intense, he actually has to leave, right? So that rejection is what he experiences there. And then when he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus, we actually have no clue what happens. We know, according to verse 10, that everybody in Asia heard the word of the Lord. But how did they respond? We're not told. Does any of them come to faith? Most likely. Was there opposition? Probably. Were the immediate conversions? Maybe, but we're not told. Luke doesn't give us those intimate details to be able to answer those questions, and that's by God's design, because what God, through Luke, wants us to focus on is this. Again, in verse 10, we're told, for two years, actually, let's go back to verse 9 at the end, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years. So we're spared the response that Paul got in the Hall of Tyrannus, which most believe was a, a schoolhouse or a lecture hall, because God wants us to focus on Paul's faithfulness. For two years, he was faithfully giving out the word of the Lord. For two years. And so that's why all those questions about how they responded, they're not even there. What we should see when he's at the Hall of Tyrannus is his faithfulness and the importance of being faithful even if we don't know the response that's given. And so what do we do, do with this? How do we manage not knowing how our neighbors will respond to us? Well, one, I think we have to be ready to party, right? So in Luke 15, 10, we find these words. This is Jesus speaking. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy in heaven over one conversion. So whenever we're out there on the street or if we're in here in the church, wherever we are, whenever Christ, come, whenever Christ brings someone to faith, that is reason to celebrate. The angels in heaven are celebrating over one. 
So we don't have to get caught up over how many numbers we have. If it's five, if it's 10, the Bible says over one, we should be ready to rejoice. So whenever God brings one into our fellowship, whenever we see somebody being converted, whether it's instantly like it was when he was in the inland with the disciples, or if it's year after year after year, these two years that he was at the Hall of Tyrannus, we must be ready to receive that one and we must be ready to rejoice. But number two, we have to expect the rejection. We should not be surprised by it. We should remember the words of Christ that we find in John 15, verses 18 through 20. And I'll read those for us. John 15, 18 through 20. Again, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words, I'm sorry, remember the word that I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, I'm sorry, if they kept my word, they will also keep your words. So we got to remember that Jesus said it would be this way. So when we do share the gospel, when we are doing ministry work, we should not be surprised if someone rejects us because Christ said it would be that way. And then remember these words from John chapter one, verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, John says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So Jesus himself was rejected in the same in a similar way to how we see Paul being rejected. We know that it hurts. We know that it's frustrating. We know that it can be heartbreaking, especially when we're trying to reach those that we came to reach. In this church plan, CXCC, it would be frustrating. It would be heartbreaking to go outside of these four walls to share the gospel day after day and then have people reject us. But we have to keep Christ or uh, the words of Jesus in mind that rejection is part of the game. It's not nice. We don't want it, but we should expect it. We should not be surprised by it. But then number three, like I said earlier, we have to remain faithful, just like Paul. We should cherish the mundane. We should find value in doing the same things day after day after day, even if we don't know the results of those things. I want to read a quote from a book called The Imperfect Pastor. Don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. It's by this cat named Jack, I'm sorry, Zach S.Y. And the quote I'm going to read is a, is a quote that he is having a conversation with a, pastor from a, with a pastor friend of his who's now kind of got bored with doing pastor work. Right. So it's, I know it's a book for pastors, but I still think it's a very powerful quote to help us as we think about this day to day. And it starts like this. As you enter ministry, you will be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. But take note, a crossroad waits for you. Jesus is at that crossroads. Because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. The pastoral vocation, because of focus on helping people cultivate what truly matters, is therefore no expectation. So we have to realize that the small things matter. The seemingly overlooked things, they matter. If no one outside of Congress Heights ever hears the name of CHCC, what you guys do day after day, it matters. It matters to God and it matters to your neighbors outside of these four walls. So we have to remain faithful. We have to. No matter if we face instant conversions, 
if we face rejection, or if we don't even know what the, what the outcome of our ministry efforts are. Just like Paul, as he reasoned for two years, the Bible says he did this daily. We too, as we engage in, in Christian ministry, we have to remain faithful. And now for my last point, we have to find encouragement in the fruit that comes in God's timing and in God's way. So again, if you close my Bible, but if you still have your Bible open, you'll notice that in verse 11, Luke is shifting his focus. So we, Paul was just in the hall of Tyrannus daily for two years, and now we see a shift in focus. And so as I read for this earlier, we see that some really interesting things are starting to happen. People are taking handkerchiefs, making sure they touch Paul, and then taking them and going to heal folk taking them and going to have demons uh, cast out. So one, we should realize this is God's word. So those things, though they seem interesting to us and maybe even strange and weird, they actually happen. Luke is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there is no need for us to question that these things happen. We also want to realize that in verse 11, we're told that God was doing these things through Paul. So it's not Paul who's going out there seeking to do these, these wonderful miracles by taking a handkerchief and then touching other people. This is God who was doing this through Paul. Luke is describing what was happening. He's not prescribing a particular ministry method, which simply means I would not expect anybody in here tomorrow to start a handkerchief ministry. I don't expect to see Brock on the street selling handkerchiefs and selling holy water or any of that stuff, right? But these things did happen. But we want to we accurately understand God's word is that Luke is describing what happened. He is not prescribing a ministry that you guys should start. Because if y'all start that ministry, we're taking your church back. Y'all, all y'all coming back to ARC, we're going to find a place for you at the ark. We're right down the street. So no handkerchief ministry, right? But as we continue down the rest of this uh, passage, all the way down to verse 40, we come upon some Jewish exorcists who try to cash in on that faithful ministry that Paul had. And so they try to cast out demons in verse 13 by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. But notice what happens in verse 15. The evil spirit is like, nah, bro, I don't know you. He's like, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who are you, right? And then after that, the person who had the evil spirit in them, he gives them the beat down of their life, sends them running out of the house naked and wounded. And in verse 17, we're told that all the residents of Ephesus hear this. So this beat down, this running out naked and wounded actually went viral, right? So all the Jews and all the Greeks hear this viral beat down. Now, here's the crazy thing. And when I noticed that in God's word, I was astounded. This is actually the way that God produces fruit from Paul's ministry. This beat down, this run, people running naked and wounded through the streets is how God brings about godly outcomes. So notice what happens next in these next few verses. One, again, in verse 17, both Jews and Greeks hear, right? So if you go back to verse 10, at the end of this two-year period where Paul is ministering, notice what it says in verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So those same Jews and Greeks from verse 10 who heard the word of the Lord are now hearing about this botched exorcism and about crazy naked men running around the streets. And God uses that to produce a praise party. So notice at the end of verse 17, if I can find it. 
says this, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So something that we would see as crazy and weird, right? People running around the streets, people getting beat up. God actually used that to bring praise to his son. But that's not it. It goes on. Again, we have Jewish exorcists running around the streets, bloody and naked, right? They got blood dripping, body parts just dangling in the wind. But yet and still, God uses that to bring about sanctification. You get the visual. The visual is important because that's how serious it is. I mean, get the visual, but not too long, right? Bring the heads up. But think about it, though. This is what God uses. Wounded, bloody, naked men. He uses that, as we're about to see, to bring sanctification in the lives of his believers. So again, notice in verse 18 where it says, Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now notice it says now believers. We're to understand that these are recent converts. These are new believers in the Lord. And when they came to faith, we have no idea. Maybe it was when he was on the street. Maybe it was when he was in the synagogue. Maybe it's from these two years of preaching at the Hall of Tyrannus. We have no idea, and that's okay, because what Luke wants us to understand through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that there were believers, that Luke's faithfulness, it was not in vain. Even though Luke was not, I'm so sorry, even though Paul, rather, was not able to see everything, he was not able to see the entire outcome of what happened in those two years, Luke is telling us that there are now believers. There were actually people who came to faith in Christ from Paul's faithful ministry. But then again, notice the order of this timing, right? They came confessing and divulging after they were believers. So because of these crazy naked men running through the streets, that caused recent believers in God to now go through the sanctification process. They were already believers, but they were still holding on to these magic practices. But after this botched exorcism, again, these crazy people running through the streets, they are now coming. They're confessing. They're divulging. They're saying that what they were doing is wrong. And then they, they put their money, literally put their money where their mouth is, and that they have this huge book burning that's worth over 50,000 pieces of silver. All of that happened, all of it, because you had these Jew- Jewish exorcists who botched their exorcism, went completely wrong, but God somehow, and his godness, was able to use that to not only bring praise to Jesus, but also as a way to sanctify his saints. But that's not it. Verse 20 goes like this. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. So God used this crazy weird event to bring praise to his son, to bring sanctification to his saints, and have the, the word of God spread mightily. That is amazing to me. But even more amazing, I won't say more amazing, equally as amazing to me is this. That as all this is happening, Paul is nowhere to be found, right? So they mention his name. Luke mentions his name that God is doing mighty things through him. And the demons mention his name saying, hey, I know Jesus and I know Paul. But Paul's actually nowhere here, nowhere in these verses, 11 through 20, he's not an actor at all. He's somewhere behind the scenes, in the background, doing whatever apostles do in the background, right? But we don't see Paul preaching. We don't see Paul here speaking boldly as he did when he went in the synagogue. We don't see here, we don't here see Paul lecturing like he was at the Hall of Tyrannus. He's actually nowhere to be found. But none of this happens without Paul's faithful ministry. If Paul wasn't faithfully ministering, there would have been no people, no exorcists who would have came to try to do what he was doing. 
if there's no exorcism that went bad, there are no crazy wounded naked people running through the streets. If there are no crazy wounded naked people running through the streets, then there is no praise being brought to Jesus. There are no saints being uh, sanctified by this happening. And the word of God is not spreading mightily. So all the way from what we saw in verses 1 to 10, where Paul is being faithful to now where he's not even being seen, his faithfulness, God takes this, again, this weird, strange event and is able to bring fruit out of it in his timing. And it's really weird, but in his own way. This is how our God operates. So what am I saying? That as we minister to a dying world, we have to be faithful. We should be encouraged knowing that God is at work even when we don't see it. We have to keep ministering to our neighbors. We have to keep proclaiming the gospel, knowing that a harvest is coming in his timing and in his way. He is able to use our faithfulness in ways that we can't even imagine. I mean, look at this thing. Look at this weird event that God's able to use because Paul had already been faithful. All right. So I know it's hard out in these streets ministering to folk who don't want to hear us. But this is what we've been called to. Right. So you have been called to Congress Heights to reach the people of Congress Heights. Embrace the freedom that you have as you do ministry work. Be flexible in how you reach them. Be flexible in how you share the gospel, but be consistent and be firm in making sure that you share the gospel. Accept the uncertainty of not knowing how you will be received. Trust God. He has a people here and he will use you to reach them in his timing and in his way. And let's find encouragement in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word this evening. We're thankful for how you use the Holy Spirit to guide the hand of Luke to write these words we find in Acts 19. We thank you for the wonderful example that Paul sets for us in being free and flexible with his approaches. We thank you for how he was consistent in sharing your word. And then we're thankful for how you took things that seem weird and strange to us, but yet you being God and you being sovereign, you were able to use those to bring glory to your name. And we thank you for that this morning. And so again, Father, I thank you for our friends here at CHCC. I thank you for bringing them into existence and allowing them to stay that way for seven months. And Father, I ask that you will work so mightily in their lives that you will encourage them to remain faithful to what you've called them to do. And as you bring people in your time and in your way, in advance, we give you praise and thanks for that. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.